you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome back, dear friends. We've got a pot boiler for you. First up today, we're turning to Munich, where you might have noticed the great and good gathered to drink and be merry in May. Some of them even did a bit of work, I'm told. Lodestar News editor Nick Savides was there, and today he will be telling us who was doing and saying what and exactly why. And we'll hear from other attendees, not least DHL Global Forwarding CEO Tim Shavat and Dan March, CEO of the World Cargo Alliance of Independent Forwarders. In part two, we turn to container markets when I'm joined by Neolink, Sean Brook, and of course, Zenitor's Peter Sand, who has been away for so long that he really does have a few points he wants to make. That's their whole game. That's what they do and what they do so well. You may not find the infamous emergency revenue surcharge that we saw right after the global financial crisis. That for one, that at least amused me. Hopefully we will see some new fun acronyms being thrown at shippers where carriers try to lift the surcharges, but it's still different this time around because carriers are loaded with cash. Carriers are in a different place, but as we just saw on the Trans-Pacific, they are beginning now once again to push for GRIs and they are successfully doing so in some of the trades. Hello everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello, one and all. As in life, so too podcasting. So before we start, it's housework. This podcast is available on pretty much all podcast platforms. And if you are using one and somehow can't find it, please do let me know and I'll try and sort it out for you. It's MikeKing121 at gmail.com. Uh, and while we're at it, if there are any topics that you would like us to cover and we're not, and you feel desperately let down, please do let me know. Same email. As trailed, we've got some great analysis of the container markets in part two. But first, let's turn to Munich, where the ever-growing transport logistic uh, conference and exhibition behemoth took place in May, along with a bunch of offshoot conferences and events. I'm now joined by the global wanderer that is Lodestar News Editor, Nick Savides, who, of course, was in Munich badgering anyone he could find for an exclusive interview. Uh, Nick, firstly, uh, welcome back. You always seem to be on the move at the moment. Are you finding all these shipping and logistics conferences welcome relief from watching the rather amusing struggles of your favourite Premier League team, Chelsea? Well, I find it more amusing to, to, to follow your team, but there we go. Not quite as amusing as mine, I guess. No, definitely not. If anyone's not sure what we're talking about, please look at the Premier League table. My team is Liverpool and they're doing slightly better than Chelsea. Thanks for coming on, Nick. <laughs> now, I'll move you briefly on before you get a, a chance to reply. Uh, what were your main takeaways from Munich then? What were the highlights? What were the main topics of discussion? As you can imagine, the, the main topic of, of discussion is climate change and the green transition. But there were lots of other things happening. Flexport is very happy that it's a deal with Shopify and Deliver has gone through. Its customers are happy, it says. Skipple needs to reinvent itself, according to its new boss, host Van Dosberg. He says uh, there's a lack of slots, particularly for freighters. US forwarders are looking to get funding for the federal government for a new infrastructure with not enough 
investment over the last 50 years, according to Brandon Freed. And there's been a lot of talk about supply chains, green supply chains, and general uh, shifting of supply chains, which I think we're going to talk about later. That's Brandon Freed, who, for those who don't know, is the executive director of the Air Forwarders Association, a good friend of this podcast and the Lodestar.com. Nick, um, I've been myself to transport logistics, and it's absolutely massive. Can you give us any idea about how many people are where? What was it like tramping around? Was it easy to find people? So there were 12 horns and 75,000 visitors from 120 countries with 2,320 exhibitors from 67 countries. So it was massive. There were a lot of people there. Uh, I, I bumped into uh, a colleague of mine who had one of those little watches from Apple and he'd walked 30 kilometers that day and he looked exhausted. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing he had done something other than drink. Yeah, I can well imagine. Uh, Nick, as we've heard before on this podcast, China's relationship with Russia, zero COVID policy, aging population, human rights abuses, threats against Taiwan. You know where I'm going with this. We're talking about China plus one or China plus many, whatever you want to call it. Was there any real sense in Munich that people are taking tangible actions on this? Yeah, there, there was lots of talk about the relocation, uh, reshoring, nearshoring from China to India, Southeast Asia, parts of the Mediterranean. I did speak to the port of Gothenburg, who were talking about the Mediterranean, most notably North Africa, that companies are moving some of their um, production to those regions. But obviously it's not as easy as just shifting production because China retains so many advantages. Uh, you, you did ask Tim, Tim Shavat, CEO of DHL Global Forwarding about this, particularly about the value of the med countries, which you've written up in the lodestart.com. Let's hear some key points from that conversation. So we see, of course, something which we call the China Plus strategy of a lot of companies, that they move parts of their production out of China and mostly into a Southeast Asian country. The typical names which are found there is then Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. That we also see and we are supporting our customers doing this because we have a network there and everything. But it will only be a part because the infrastructure in China is very good. It's actually second to none in Asia when it comes to the amount of ports and airports and how modern they are, how efficient they are run. And you don't have that in the other countries. They still have to invest into this kind of infrastructure. So that also limits the opportunity or possibility to go out of China then at a larger scale. But what we have seen from a Mediterranean point of view, if you include North Africa to the Mediterranean, we have seen that in some commodities, fashion, automotive, have also moved parts there, production there. Tunisia, Morocco, you have Turkey, which has always been for fashion something. And I think that is something which we've seen also for a longer time. And also the China Plus we've seen for a longer time. So I don't think that these are new trends. I think that these are trends which might become a bit stronger, but not a trend which is totally new and everyone should be surprised that these trends are there. Nick, as you mentioned earlier, sustainability was also high on the agenda at Munich. Any announcements there that caught your eye? Well, I, I did speak to Duisport, the inland terminal on the Rhine. and They have converted or are in the process of converting what they call Coal Island, which was a coal storage island in the area. That's in the process of converting that into a 2 million TEU container facility. Now, they're doing that using electricity and hydrogen made from electricity. So it's green hydrogen. 
They'll be importing containers with uh, hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera. So there is plenty of that kind of activity going on around the globe, actually. And presumably there's an awful lot of conversation about the, the pros and cons of different fuels and services and how you cut emissions and who will pay on which point. DHL is on a big sustainability push. And I found it very interesting in your interview with Tim, who's very optimistic about these initiatives, including DHL's huge investments in sustainable fuels and electric vehicles. And he's also very positive on shipper enthusiasm for green transport options. But he did have a strong message on exactly who will be footing the bill for all of this. On this trade fair, which we are on here in Munich, it's very apparent that everyone is talking. We have numerous customer contacts throughout the last two days, and it's nearly everyone is asking the questions. Well. So everyone is talking about it. And the message we give is always the same. In a way, it's, it's going to cost more money because at the moment, the demand for the sustainable aviation marine fuel is still not strong enough, and there's not enough being produced yet to make the prices go down. But at the moment, it's going to be more expensive. We recommend that you don't see this as part of your transportation costs, but that you build your own budgets, your CO2 reduction budget, or your sustainable budget, sustainability budget, to not mix this up with your transportation costs. Because that way, you can start work on a cleaner supply chain by investing into it, because you need to invest into it. It's not going to come for free. The producers are not going to do it for free. The carriers are not going to do it for free. The forwarders are not going to do it for free. No one can swallow that. But you, as a customer for your end products, you need to be aware that this, this is going to cost you more. And the reaction to that is always positive. They understand that. But they also understand, and are probably also thinking about or requesting in a way, that over time, this becomes cheaper. And yeah. I we strongly believe that the more demand we have for these kind of sustainable fuels, and the more capacity is being made to produce it, it would also mean that the prices will go down. Nick, you speak to shippers quite often. Would you say they're enthusiastic about paying these higher bills or is maybe enthusiastic not exactly the right word? I would say enthusiasm isn't exactly the word. That would be descriptive of their <laughs> Horror? <laughs> Judging from uh, the, the director at Global Shippers Forum, James Hookham's reaction, I think horror would be more descriptive. He, he remembers uh, the IMO 2020 Low Sulfur Fuel Directive, which was uh, passed on directly to the shippers and they couldn't pass it on to their customers. So uh, he's quite keen to avoid that scenario with the uh, decarbonisation. It's the IM, IMO 2020 Low Sulfur Fuel Regulations that came in at the start of that year. And yeah, there was a big spike in low sulfur fuel prices and, and these were all passed on to shippers. Now, something that uh, shippers do inadvertently pay for is supply chain wastage, which the Cool Chain Association has been rather vocal about. Some $220 billion of food waste is attributable to cool chains. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, that's correct. That, that figure comes from the International Plant Protection Conference, which is part of the uh, UN. And yes, I spoke to Vijan Chetty, who's the general manager of the South Africa's Perishable Products Export Control Board and a CCA board member. And he said, we need to look at the total value change. It's not one aspect that is 100% responsible for losses. You, you need to look at the production in terms of fertilizers, irrigation, and pest control. It starts at the orchard. And he added, the cold chain is not a hospital for inefficiencies. 
not a hospital for inefficiencies. What a fantastic quote about the cold chain. Where What are those guys doing about cutting out some of those inefficiencies, Nick? Well, they've got some really interesting trials going on. So they've done three so far, two on flowers with the cold chain association. And the, the latest of these three trials is to attract the export of raspberries. Raspberries are a rather delicate fruit. Right, So they've been doing that by air cargo, tracking the temperature from the orchards throughout the supply chain. And Mr. Chetty said that raspberry producers ordinarily would see 30% of their export volumes either dumped, downgraded or sent producing. And they have a limited shelf life because of their delicacy and it's susceptible to damage during transport. So the aim of the trial was to adapt the cool chain to optimise the standard of the fruit arriving at the consumer's table. Those trials showed the cutting time between harvesting and cooling. So they were, they were blast cooling these things to one hour could maintain delicate fruit much, much better. Moreover, it revealed the temperature of 0 degrees centigrade rather than the current 2 degrees centigrade should be used for blast cooling. Now, I don't know if I can pivot on this particular phrase, but food for thought. Dear listener, sorry about that, but we are pivoting with air cargo. Uh, according to TAC Index, global air freight prices are continuing on a downward trend with the overall Baltic air freight index slipping a further 3.9% in the week to the 15th of May. It's now down around about 50% year on year. And if you spoke to Dan March, CEO at World Cargo Alliance, which uh, just for our listeners claims to be the largest independent freight forwarder network, you spoke to him about the prospects for air cargo. Now, we'll hear what you said in a moment, but was there general optimism from the air cargo crowd in Munich? Well, I spoke to two air cargo forwarders on this issue in particular, and Dan March was one of them. And they seemed pretty up, upbeat about the fourth quarter in particular. But I did ask um, Rand Reed from um, the Air Forwarders Association as well, and he said that they thought it was going to happen. I said to him, is that fantasy? Or he said, it, it's a little bit of fantasy, it's a little bit of wishful thinking. But we really, really believe that there's going to be a big, a big jump in the, in the last quarter. You never know when there's going to be a, a hit to those supply chains. You might be a dispute on the West Coast. It could be something else. OK, let's hear what Dan said exactly. It's clear the market's changed in the last six months. Feedback from our members from all around the world is that they've had a really productive, uh, really good couple of years. But as we all know, this, this industry is cyclical and this year is going to be more challenging for everyone involved in the industry. But from what I hear, there's not doom and gloom. I think people understand that, that, that this year is going to be a little more challenging. But there's also optimism with all the changes they've introduced in terms of improving the efficiency of their businesses, introducing new technology products to help them stay relevant and competitive. So, uh, although, yes, rates are down, both air renovation and there's not quite the volumes that there were certain times in the last two years, there's still plenty of business out there, especially if you're, if you're offering the right product. Obviously, that, the downturn that we've seen in the air cargo market, as TAC Index indicated, has also been apparent in ocean markets, which we'll hear a bit more about in the, in the second part of this podcast. But how did Dan say forwarders are reacting to all of this, are they cutting costs, or or what did anyone else you spoke to say there about the the health of ocean freight right now? Well, it's no secret that ocean freight is um, what should we say it's in the doldrums as far as rates go. It's a, it's feast and famine for them. 
So the feast has happened, now we're into famine. And part of that is, is largely the, the increase in capacity, and then there's the fall off of demand. So those two elements have combined to make things rather tough. But forwarders apparently have reacted by doing things like digitalizing. And one of the interesting things that I thought Dan said was that they weren't actually seeing a reduction in staff through digitalization. The kind of was the term, the accepted routine is that you digitalize and you cut the costs by reducing your number of staff. But what Dan was saying was that the digitalization process has meant that the staff that were doing menial tasks are now redeployed doing tasks that would benefit the bottom line rather than being laid off. I'd love to know how close the correlation is between someone moving from doing a menial task to doing an IT task. But well, I'll take Dan's word on that one. What anyone who's been listening to this podcast or reading the lodestar.com will know is that many forwarders have not been particularly happy with container lines after the treatment they received when rates were flying and, and space was scarce. The boot is very much on the other foot again now. Over to Dan March. On the ocean side, you know, the last two years, there was a lot of disquiet about the way the shipping lines acted, when the rates blew up and they ripped up people's contracts and acted in a way that many folders felt was a little unfair to them. And I think that's coming back now that the ocean carriers suddenly need those forwarder loads again. Uh, the sort of tables turned a little bit. Nick, Dan also told you that the approach to forwarders by airlines compared to shipping lines was quite striking during the pandemic. It was striking because it was so different. That's what he was saying. There was palpable anger towards the shipping lines. But uh, the airlines, who also had a, a massive increase in the cost of air freight with the lack of belly hold caused by the fall off in the passenger numbers, but they didn't actually uh, have the same reaction from shippers. They thought that they were treated with respect by the airlines and with a, a real lack of respect by the shipping lines. And no journalist would ever say that. In part two, I'm joined by two experts in their field as we look at container shipping in more detail. But for now, Nick Savides, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Now, let's turn to container shipping and guess what? Fresh from a much-deserved break, we have the one and only Peter Sand, Lodestar podcast legend who, in his spare time, works as Dennis's chief analyst. Welcome back, Peter. Have you missed us? <laughs> like crazy, Mike. But I'm really happy that Emily shared her insights with you and all the listeners of the Lodestar podcast while I was gone. So uh, it's a pleasure to be back doing my, yeah, my free time job also. Emily was fantastic. Okay, Peter, where to start? Now you're back with us. Let's look at Asia to the US West Coast. We saw April general rate increases sort of get accepted, not at the levels they were supposed to, but they very rarely do. We've seen carriers playing around with capacity, some of them cutting more than others. On the demand side, consumption isn't looking too bad, but inflation is not really going away. Uh, there were a few brave souls calling an early peak season when some of those rate increases in April came through. What's been happening in May? A lot has been happening in May and, and yet nothing. So let me start just by 
perhaps refreshing uh, someone's mind here that the Wall Street Journal did actually run a story quoting Senator indicating a jump in the carrier's spot rates on uh, the Trans-Pacific trade lane, indicating that perhaps they were prepping the market for uh, a traditional third quarter peak season. Well, I must say that you have to take any indication like that with a grain of salt, not only because they sail on the big oceans, but certainly because now is a different time. At the face of it, it may appear to be different from any other market, but it's not. We saw the GRI, as you mentioned, be fairly successful, jumping like almost $500. But in essence, the knock-on effect on the long-term contracts that we follow also closely with the crowdsourced data at Senator, they really did not follow suit. So in, in essence, when carriers tried to push up the spot market to make it stronger for signing long-term contracts, it was not really happening this time around. But we must also, on the other hand, accept that the GRI is not completely evaporated and gone by now. I think we left half of it now with spot rates, uh, certainly by mid-May being above where they were before the April implementation show. So actually not that bad. But there are many things playing into this, as you rightly mentioned, uh, Mike. It's not only the uh, cost of living crisis uh, still ongoing, but definitely also kind of a reset for the U.S. shippers. If you look at the, the demand as such, we're kind of like back at 2019 level on the main trades here. But if you compare the numbers, of course, for first quarter 2023 with that of last year, when all shippers were literally front-loading in order just to make sure that they got the goods they needed for another spectacular year of sales. Of course, you should not be scared the hell out of the market by seeing volume down by 26% on the Far East to North America inbound. And, and that's literally what you need to look at. But compare it to the pre-pandemic years of 2019 in order to see that, okay, we, we may be at a level somebody could call, say, a uh, trend line again, uh, with a massive change and a massive promotion during the COVID years. And still, of course, the one joker that uh, remains to be seen also result on the uh, U.S. West Coast, of course, is the labor dispute. Uh, I think unconfirmed rumors has it that parts of uh, the uh, main obstacles around automation is at least tentatively resolved by, uh, as, as we speak, uh, there may here, but salary and pension remains outstanding. So I think shippers are still unsettled. They should still worry about the developments on the U.S. West Coast. And, uh, well, check out the most recent blog from Sonetta because we are also putting spotlight on another, say, uh, escape route for cargo that used to go into the U.S. West Coast beyond that of U.S. Gulf Coast and U.S. East Coast. And what is that escape route, Peter? Well, uh, you might want to look north to Vancouver, but that's not really what we're hinting to. Uh, Manzanillo in Mexico appears to be one of the escape routes that some shippers have uh, made use of since middle of, of last year. At least Senator data shows that there is an impact from increased volume going into Manzanillo. And I think that indicates also that some shippers found a way through the worries of the U.S. West Coast by going south. And you also have a big super railroad that now covers Mexico, Canada, and the U.S., which adds a, a different element to that Mexico equation, I, I would guess. But let me just ask you one more question on that U.S. shippers scenario. 
Uh, we're at this that peak negotiation period for the contracting season. How's this playing into these the carrier strategy and the shipper strategy at the moment? I think we've seen carriers really doing a tough job trying to balance out the dramatic falling demand to uh, to that of deployed capacity, and they are not blanking as many sailings uh, right here right now as they they were only a few months back. So apparently they have found out that that something is changed. We certainly also see the deployment of more ships into some of the trade lanes. As you will be also aware, we, we do have the uh, Senator Carbon Emission Index uh, going up, backing also indirectly the speed and transit times of carriers uh, on a trade lane uh, like this. And of course, when you add more ships and you, uh, you literally fill them up and sail slower with bigger ships also, you get a lower carbon footprint on a rate like this. And uh, so we can see the actual, say, operational effects from the change in market conditions also in a lower carbon footprint from the carriers operating. And, uh, and that's why you, you basically also see uh, another indicator of market conditions, which is the layup that uh, have come down in most recent uh, weeks and months, actually, as carriers prefer to do slow steaming at more ships sailing lower into the services and go, of course, for another key trade lane like the Asian to Europe trade. When they go back again, they pass the Cape of Good Hope. So that's one way to make bad use of the overpriced assets. But in essence, apparently, in economic terms, that's the best choice. So it's cheaper to put an extra few ships into the same rotation, slow the ships down, reroute them via the Cape of Good Hope on that Asia-Europe service on the way back. So you save on the Suez Canal as well, but you also cut down your fuel consumption. The cost of hot laying up or cold laying up a vessel are actually a lot higher than many people might imagine. It's not just a case of just anchor it up or something, is it? There's a lot more to it than that, and there isn't an expense to that. Do you think we will see more of this super slow steaming, can we call it that? I think there's still something to take away from slow steaming, call it super slow steaming or extra slow steaming. I mean, it's a very different environment from a decade ago when these container ships were traveling at much higher speeds than they are now. But we do see sort of a leveling out. It's not like carriers are cutting the knots by 20% on the main hauls, but it's slow steaming in the smart way which they found out, of course, early on that you do excessive or extra slow teaming, you could call that, on the back hole, and you keep up the knots on the front holes, making sure that transit times that you service your customers are still satisfactory. So you do it in a smart way. And that, of course, is a, it's a more complicated way than just slowing down the entire chain. But you do keep up the sailing speed, and we can see that in our data too. But on the back hole, that's when you really go slow. So there's still something to take away and surely we will see more of this going forward as the order book, as we know it, is still quite sizable with a lot of new tonnage coming into services in the coming two years. How differently do you see the Asia-Europe trade at the moment, Peter, in terms of the demand and supply side equations versus what we've just discussed in the US market, particularly the Trans-Pacific? Is it a different set of parameters that we're talking about when we look at the supply-demand balance? In many ways, I've looked at the Asia to Europe trade so many times, and it keeps on surprising me due to the uh, developments that you tend to see also, and not further back than just March this year, that actually, according to CTS data, proved to be the best month ever. Well, at least on record, I got uh, five-year data here, and I don't expect, say, much higher. Uh, numbers are uh, going further back. 
but of course they are still down 5.4% on uh, in first quarter this year as, as opposed to that of last year. So there's something special going on here and especially volumes into the Mediterranean have been quite solid. So it's, it's a different picture that is developing from a carrier perspective. I think they also hustled on how to approach this because you do not apply exactly the same strategy to that of say, uh, Asia to, to North America, where the drop in volume into East coast and West coast is, is fairly identical down 30%, but into Europe, balancing out Met and North Europe, where North Europe is a bit more under the weather, that is tricky. So I think for the rest of this year, with the, with the you say, cost of living crisis still on, you mentioned yourself, inflation is, is still high in Europe as well as US, and, and that will still trickle down into, uh, say, smaller share wallet spent on containerized goods from Asia on any trade. But going into it, Europe, going into Met, I think that's one of the trades or some of the trades that I will look quite closely at as we progress the coming month and, and head into uh, yeah, the traditional third quarter which is often mentioned as the peak season, but let's see about uh, this year. I think there's still plenty of headwinds uh, and we do certainly expect volumes for the full year to contract, I suppose, uh, to, as compared to last year, which was already down. So um, no, say, no smooth sailing, no sunshine, but uh, still hardship uh, regardless of some improvement in, in devastating numbers. Well, it does sound like there might be a little bit of sunshine on the med there, which we'll come back to in future podcasts. The other trade, of course, that's been outperforming many of the others over the, probably over the last year or so is the transatlantic. It's attracted a fair amount of extra tonnage, but we've still seen rates falling off, are we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tenetta spot rates uh, right now sits around 2,500 for front all North Europe to US East Coast, still comparing to 1,900 approximately for the free, for the pre-pandemic level. So uh, it is still a market that is elevated from the pre-pandemic level. It is not defying gravity anymore to the extent that it, it was only a couple of months back. But I think it's developing fairly along the lines that we, we kind of indicated, perhaps a little bit falling faster than anticipated. And, and we can only call out the carriers for, for ruining it themselves. They have injected more capacity on a trade like this. They have uh, blanked only uh, a few sailings. In our data, where we make use of sea intelligence, they nail only one sailing being blanked this week around mid-May, right? So it's a matter of checks and balances here. And if you look also at demand, that literally also, of course, kept this trade a sacred and a high earning one for the carriers last year, we see 10% down in volumes from North Europe, not North Europe, but Europe as such into US East Coast down by 6.6% from North Europe in a sense. So there is demand coming down, there is spot rate coming down, long-term rates still signed, elevated from the spot rates. And, and I guess we will expect to see that also for the coming quarters as this trade also to some extent normalized. As you mentioned uh, today, it's a very mixed market and each trade seems to be very different. It's very hard to pin down and there's so many variables out there, but is one of the things that we can be sure about is that we'll probably see carriers dipping into the box of surcharge and blank sailing tricks for the rest of 2023. Can I say that? Well, you can definitely say that because that's their whole game. I mean, that's what they do and what they do so well. You may not find the infamous emergency revenue surcharge that we saw right after the global financial crisis. That 
for one that at least amused me. So hopefully we will see some new fun acronyms also uh, being thrown at shippers where carriers try to lift the surcharges, but it's still different this time around because carriers are loaded with cash. Carriers are in a different place, but as we just saw on the Trans-Pacific, they are beginning now once again to push for GRIs and they are successfully doing so in some of the trades. So I would disappoint it if they do not bring forward some of those classics that you just mentioned as, well, it's back in the trenches on many of the aspects. Carriers in one trench, shippers in, in the other trench. And in between, you've got those mixed strategies to watch out for. Will MSC soon surpassing 5 million TEUs under its, uh, say, operating networks uh, going solo? Uh, or will it be uh, the, the integrators of this world, CMA, CGM, Merck, that will come out on top? I think we are in for a few catalyst year in, in that sense, uh, with market going against it and with that clear strategy difference or between some of the main players in the market. So a lot of exciting stuff for us to debate also going forward on a podcast like this one. Next up, we'll be looking at this strange mix of demand variables and blanks from carriers and how that's impacting one particular trade. And I don't want to give too much away, but that particular trade is somewhere down under. We'll be coming to that in a moment. But until next time, Peter San, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. A true pleasure as always, Mike. Finally today, I'd like to turn to the specifics of one trade where the prevalence of blank sailings from carriers really is causing some issues. Straight from Sydney, I'd like to welcome Sean Crook, Director of Australian Forwarder Neolink. Hello, Sean. Hey there, Michael. Thanks for having us. I'm very excited to be on the podcast and be the first honorary member uh, representing Australia. Unfortunately, I'm also English, so I don't know how that plays out. Well, I guess it means that you're about halfway there, aren't you? We love having Aussies on the, the Lodestar podcast, but we haven't really done a great deal on those Australian container trades. It's the China to Australia trade, obviously for Australia, is, is super important. Just some background for our listeners. Australia is a big import trade. That makes it not a very balanced trade for carriers to manage. You've seen rates on that inbound lane plummet to sort of below 2019 levels or so. But now you're seeing carriers taking action to get spot rates back up. What does that look like for you and your customers? Really, for us, it's quite a challenging situation to navigate. In May, we had, I think it was six or seven blank sailings come in place in May and a real mix across most of the carriers. The really only exceptions to that were probably Hapag Lloyd and maybe, uh, maybe a couple of others. But in reality now, all of a sudden, they're trying to effectively obviously build a bottleneck and try and save, you know, obviously try and increase their rates. You touched on it as well for Australia. China's a really important, you know, trade lane for us. It's almost, I think, 30% of our trade, which for most Western economies is really quite unique to have a China as, a, as such an important part of our trade. And it's not a very attractive market, right? You talked about our rates plummeting down now anywhere from $200 to $500. It costs us more money to get the containers out of the port than what it does to actually ship it. So the commercials don't stack up for the shipping lines. And our ports, I think, here in Australia, out of the, the World Bank Index, I think ours are probably, the top is rated 308 out of 370. So our ports are not very efficient. And that also, in turn, does make it almost a bit of a, an elongated journey to come down here to just kind of service the market and get container volumes out. And it's, it, it is proving to be a bit of a challenge at the moment. So poor economies from a liner perspective with that import demand balance uh, and those low rates, that doesn't bode well for Australian businesses looking for a regular scheduled 
service. We've seen blanks on this trade previously in earlier downturns, but would you say this is different this time, Sean? The only comparison we probably have from our China office was actually before we even started the airlink, which was back in uh, 2016. And that's probably the only like-for-like comparison. But, but even then, this is still the most blank sailings that we've experienced in, in the last sort of six to seven years. So even during COVID, where there was challenges with vessels arriving on a range of number of different trade lanes, this is the worst that we've seen. And you're also getting hit by surcharges. Is that right? Well, this is probably the, the communication came out early that surcharges are going to be coming in place, rate restoration is going to be in place. But we did see that happen in March and it never come to fruition. And it was all about locking your rates before rates go go up. And we had that communication at the beginning of the month in the last sort of 24 to 48 hours. 50% of the shipping lines, I would say, have retracted from that and said that they're not going to be putting that in place. Lo and behold, that's created a surge of bookings go one way to the market going into the end of May, beginning of June whilst really Costco and a few of the other shipping lines are probably sitting back and saying that no, no, they will be putting that rate restoration in. I very highly doubt it at this point that that's going to actually come to fruition. And, and a lot of that you, you talk about, Michael, about the economic situation here in Australia, even despite all the rate increases that the RBA has gone through here in Australia and the inflationary pressures, it's really only been the last four months where we've started seeing container volumes start to drop off. We had a massive surge at the back half of last year a lot of supply chains taking that just-in-case model probably way too far the other way. And we don't know how long really that's going to last. And it could go into the end of the year where you, really it takes a while for those supply chains to deplete and we start to see some normality. So like in many other markets, high inventories are weighing heavily. Absolutely. How are you managing all this? I mean, it must be pretty disruptive for you, for your customers. So you're expecting more surcharges, more blanks from carriers. Is, is this what you're planning for and warning your customers about? We noticed there's a tale of two cities we kind of call in our business. Probably 50 to 60% of our customers get us involved really and we do on the factory level data. So we get involved typically those companies three to four weeks during production ahead of time before their orders are even ready. So those customers we find are operating at 15 to 20% more efficiency even during disruption. Customers that are very reactive in giving us their orders and asking us to book the week of readiness they're typically the ones where they're either performing in line with market or below market. And so really for us, it's the, where we can be proactive, we can be, we're very AI and tech driven in terms of our automation in our business. And we can really then deliver on those promises to our customers that if we do need to move between blank sailings, moving to spot market, moving to NAC market, if we do need to do that for customers, we can, but we have to have that in our system and our operators need to be doing that. It does create those concerns, but it's actually a big part of what we sell our business on. Is about being that proactive partner and having to get involved in an exception level basis if we need to be agile and move with the market to keep supply chains moving. So you're expecting more surcharges, more blanks from the carrier side? Is that what you're planning for? Are you already seeing signs of that? We're seeing signs that it probably will. I, I think that the, un, unless if the consumer sentiment that came out today at the beginning of this week, we've seen the lowest record in consumer sentiment since COVID. And the only other likable period was in the global financial crisis, where ironically here in Australia, we actually missed out on a technically a recession. And if that does continue and we do have that inflationary pressures, we do see that soft demand. If there is that soft demand, we see that it's going to be a very challenging environment for the carriers to try and get their rates back up. And the only way that we can see that happening is by them pulling services, which they have done at the beginning of this year. They've pulled a number of services here to Australia. 
and that will create challenges for importers during busy periods where they do need to get stock in, whether it's the end of the financial year in June here in Australia for end of financial year deals, or we're going into the second half of the year for peak season. Do people get that these strategies do make sense from a liner perspective, from a business point of view, or is there an element of resentment towards them? I think there is. I think it's probably both, right? I, I think that customers are it's kind of like, well, finally, it's time for these guys to take a little bit of what we had on the chin. But I think they do also understand that Australia is a very unique market. We're a, we don't really have many countries around us apart from New Zealand. And so in some kind of weird way, we do need the carriers. We do need them servicing this market. And doing that at two to 500 USD a box is definitely not feasible. So customers are getting a little bit smarter about what's going on. They don't think that the rates are going to sit this low at any point in time, but they've also not seen disrupted service. And I think that's the key part is that really from the beginning of the year, we've not seen schedule reliability really in the floor. It's been very consistent. There's been an abundance of service. We've seen really consistent performance of the ports out of China. Things have been moving here very quickly on time. I think now where there will be concerns is, is all of a sudden now you're paying cheap rates, but you're also now going to be having to deal with blank sailings and delays. And I think that's going to create more issues as we head into the second half of the year for supply chains that need to keep things moving. Well, hopefully you can come back in the second half of the year, Sean, and update us on exactly how all of this has played out. But for now, Sean Crook, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. No, thanks for having us, Michael. Appreciate it. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 